0: Welcome to the Beyond High Performance podcast, featuring content and conversations from me, Jason Jaggard, along with our elite coaches at Novus Global, their high-performing clients, and the faculty at the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching. On this podcast, you'll hear some of the world's best executive coaches and high-performing leaders, artists, and athletes discuss how they continue to go beyond high performance in their lives and businesses.
1: I've often just thought, why not go for things? And I can't tell you how many people in my life I've met who are doing all the things they're supposed to do, but they're not sometimes not finding the things that they love because of that.
0: Today's episode is from the Meta Performance Show, where I sit down with high performers who continually aspire to go beyond high performance. On today's show, I interview Matteo Messina. Matteo is a Grammy award-winning film and television composer. He has written for dozens of movies and television shows, all while never formally learning how to read or write music. Since the age of 23, he has composed a symphony every year to benefit Seattle Children's Hospital and has raised over $2 million for kids and their families. In our conversation, we talk about how staying relentless and, quote, not knowing what you can't do has informed his success as a musician covering his early days of traveling and discovering the desire to compose for film we dive into why he is still rolling up his sleeves and hustling as hard today as he was at the beginning of his career and why it's working now better than ever enjoy the show first i want to talk about uh how this got started for you and i don't want to go back to when you were three and playing music but what was what was your what was your day day job before you got into to uh composing over 20 symphonies
1: Uh, My very first day job was inside sales at a network security company uh, in Seattle, Washington during the height of the internet boom. Uh, Yeah, that was my first day job. That was when I wrote my first... Well, yeah. Uh, And e-commerce. E-commerce as well.
0: E-commerce. Was that the job that you had when you were playing the piano at Nordstrom? Yes. Yes. and and how so the and what I'm curious about is people like shift careers and as people explore different parts of who they are vocationally like did you enjoy that were you good at that what was that job like for you?
1: oh yeah i loved it i well i studied business in university and uh it was i was doing international sales i was supporting uh an, another a teammate who we would go sell we sold a big seven figure deal into n t t in japan which is like R-E-T-T. and yeah um I would go down to like uh, Central America and, and I speak Spanish. And I would, I, I remember one time I showed up to a, uh, like some type of conference and I was supposed to give a talk, but I had I was supposed to have a translator and the translator was not there. So I had to give <laughs> a, ta- a technical talk and I thought, well, maybe it will be, 10 or 15 people and there were like a hundred plus men in suits. And I was like this 23, 24 year old kid. I was just like, oh, <laughs> Dios mío. But it, it it all worked.
0: <laughs> right. So 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 I mean, and you, my guess is your your company loved you. They 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 saw the value in you, you were a rising star in that world. Uh
1: I think, yeah, they definitely valued me. I valued them. I used to go on runs with the CEO. He was a really neat guy. Um, in fact, when I went into... I don't want to say tender my resignation, but when I when I went in to say I was going to uh, move to Hollywood to pursue uh, film scoring, I was in tears because I felt like I was letting them down because I I'd been there. I think I was number twenty something in this company, and we would kind of grown quite a bit. And, yeah, and and they were like, "We've been waiting for you to say this. Like, of course, <laughs> you know." And they were, you know, they're like, "We don't want you to go, but we do, you know." And and uh, and so. You know, it was a really nice, it was a really good way to part ways for sure.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and that's so then that's the rub of the conversation. Like that's a huge transition or it seems like mm-hmm. it from e commerce sales to a Hollywood composer. Uh, I don't think many people necessarily make that kind of jump or that kind of cognitive leap. If you're going to ask an e commerce guy, what's your next pivot? Uh, my guess is uh, Hollywood musician is not necessarily on the top thousand things that a person might think of. So, <laughs> how did that happen? Walk us back to, your your journey with music, and you can go ahead and start when you were young.
1: Uh, oh, Okay. Uh, so, basically, when I, I, I as a child, I I had a musical ear, and uh, when I was little, my brothers would turn the stereo on and turn it off, and then I would play what I heard, and it was like a little game hmm. I did with some of my friends and stuff, and and then uh, and then tried lessons a couple times, just never really stuck with me, but I was obsessed with the Muppets theme song. So when I was like seven years old, <clears throat> I think that's first grade. Uh, I given the piano teacher at the little Catholic school I was going to, I gave her the sheet music of the Muppets and she played it for me. And then I played it back for her acting like I was looking at the music and <laughs> she knew what I was doing and I wasn't playing it perfectly either, you know, of course, but, and, uh, but I would, that's how I, I learned music. And then, uh, did that all through high school, even when it wasn't cool to play for me. I was never in band. I never did those things, but I always played. I realized that after a while, like whether I had the greatest day or the worst day, the piano was where I expressed my emotion. And then I followed some artists that I really loved back in the day. One was named George Winston. I loved his piano playing and another named David Lenz. And what I didn't realize is it was really shaping me in the beginning, you know, because I didn't have a voice per se back then. But so by the time uh, I was in university, uh, I was playing piano. <clears throat> we had all these beautiful pianos around our campus. And I was playing piano. And this guy said, hey, uh, or you didn't even play in the band. He just had a friend who had a band. He's like, why don't you come over? So I went over in this band and there was no drummer. There was no, it was just a guitarist and a singer. And I was playing piano. And then on the br- or keyboard and on the break, I went and played the drums. And they're like, oh, stay there. And I, I loved it. And it was so fun. I started playing drums. And then what happened was, in the band I was playing in, one of the guitarists was uh, in the engineering classes, at audio engineering. And so he said, hey, I can record you, but we can't do it while the school's open. We have to do it when it's closed. And I was like, sure. So I made my first three albums from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., lighting a candle, setting it on the piano. I paid the engineers a beer and pizza. Um, I would go to the art department and ask if anybody wanted to paint a cover. My friend Danny was a graphic designer. And then when I went to play this very first little concert, I had some albums. And it was so funny because they also made it like a ice cream social, whatever the heck that is. <laughs> but I'll never forget it because there were like 200 plus kids down there to hang out and eat ice cream and they all listened to me play piano for like an hour and I was like this is ridiculous but they bought most of the albums which was great and so then that resident advisor said oh you should go here and somebody else did pretty soon I did a little circuit and then I started playing at restaurants and then uh when I was making that third album one of the engineering students said hey have you ever used midi and this is 1995 and I go what's that he goes it's how instruments talk to computers Mm -hmm. and I, I didn't quite grasp it. And he said, Well, come over to my studio. So I went over and he said, Play one of your songs. And so I played on the keyboard and I looked up on the screen, and there was notation on the screen. And I was like, Oh, that's a great communicator. Huh. And then he said, Here's the sound of a flute. And I played the flute along with the piano. And he goes, Did you have that planned? And I go, No. And he goes, he goes, All right. And then he goes, here's some strings. And I played the strings along with the piano and the flute. And he goes, You didn't have he didn't arrange this before. And I go, No, I go, I don't want to sound crazy. But I've always heard all this in my head, hmm. and then right then I just said, and I was 22. I go, I'm gonna write a symphony someday.
0: It's not. I don't think it's normal for people to just like give themselves permission to voraciously learn all that music. I don't think it's. I don't think it's normal for people to give themselves permission to uh to write an album. Like no one was asking you to write an album. You just you just did it. So how, where does that come from? Like how did how did you? What is it about you? When, if you were to encourage people who aren't like that, who oftentimes have ideas but they don't act on them, or they have these these uh, things that they do that they really enjoy but they don't dig into it, what is it about you that 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 allows you to to lean into that where others kind of hold back?
1: That's a that's a good question. I it's funny. I was right when you asked. I'm like, oh, I have no idea, and then something just popped into my head, which yeah. is, I love to daydream. Hmm. I I I love to like fantasize about things in, in life and a lot of times it's been about my future. And I think what drove me to do a lot of those things was just uh, the thought of, oh, what if I did that? What would that be like? And instead of just like like I, I'd see somebody else do something. Well like, well, I look back to George Winston and David Lenz. Those are piano players I admire. Yeah. And it's funny because I remember for a while, I'm sure that for a while there I was like, oh I want to be a piano player. I remember when I was, you know, playing at, I mean, when I was at Starbucks, there were only, there were less than eight Starbucks, I think, when I started playing there. But even then I, you know, would sub at Nordstrom occasionally. I I remember there was this building where there was this piano player and he played every day. And I thought, wow, what a cool job. You just get paid to play piano. And I remember him telling me, he's like, nah, you don't want this job. Like, and I was like, really? He's like, nah, you don't want want this job. And, and, uh, but, but it took me going there and asking him Hmm. and, uh, and I was like, Oh, that's weird. I wonder why not. You know, I, I, I've often just thought, why not go for things? Um, yeah. It's interesting because something happened to me when I was 19 that have, has affected my entire life. But but what you asked me was a question is why would I do those things as a kid? I think part of it was just um, ambition and part of it was boredom at times. You know, like, mm-hmm. I mean, we had an Atari 2600 and my neighbors had Nintendo, but like, you know, uh, we watched a lot of television, but um I think it was just something that I I became interested in. And I think when you have a passion about something and you become interested in something like, why not dive in? Like, like I love surfing. Like I've loved surfing for a long time. And yesterday morning as I was surfing at Malibu and the, the sun was rising and I was just like, I'm so happy I'm here. And it takes effort to get there. It takes getting up at, you know, before dawn and it takes driving, you know, like half hour to get there, 25 minutes, half hour. But, but when I'm there and when I'm surfing and when I'm riding waves and seeing friends and being in the ocean and seeing dolphins cruise by and, (laughs) you know, seals and different things. And I'm just like, I love this so much. And so I make the effort to put that in my life. And I think if you, if you find something that, that you're interested in, Uh, and passionate about go for it and I remember my father telling me when I got out of university and I was telling him oh I learned this and I got my marketing degree and he goes I don't want to burst your bubble you just got a piece of paper that says you know how to go through a system and navigate it and we get in a company and he goes it's not about finding what makes you happy as much he goes find something that you're really interested in and make sure it challenges you because you'll feel gratified at the end of the day that you've You've done a good job working, and you've contributed to something in our world, you know. And he was working at Boeing, designing all sorts of things, you know, for his his career. And so, um, although I will admit, my now the choice I have made for career, I'm giddy. I'm so happy I I do it because I love love doing it. But there are times it can be tough, for sure.
0: Yeah, it's everything has a job element to it, but and I think knowing you, that's that's what I've noticed is you you absolutely give yourself permission to explore things that bring you joy, not just happiness, but like joy that fascinate you, that light you up. Uh, and you don't dabble in it, like you lean into it. And I and I really admire that about you. So even one thing I'd ask our listeners is like, what are the things that might light you up? And what I've noticed when I talk to clients is oftentimes they don't know. And these are like very high performing people. These are people who are running multi-billion dollar companies and you, you ask them, hey, what is it that like really lights you up inside? And and they're 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 still figuring that out. You know, so it's a, it's an important question for them to consider. Can, can
1: I endeavor to guess why? I mean, yeah, please. Uh, I, when I told you I had a life changing experience at nineteen, it was basically I uh, was hiking and was in a rock slide and uh, went down a like seven hundred foot face. Like part of it was airborne the first you know thirty feet and um, and very nearly lost my life. Mm. And I remember once I had recovered. And I went back down to the place where it happened and I was by myself. A couple of things happened that, that were, I didn't realize how important they'd be in my life. One was, um, I remember thinking, you know, I was 20, no, I was 19. So I was still in college. Uh, and I remember thinking, okay, I think I've been trying to impress my parents. You know, like, I think Uh, I've been, uh, and I remember going, I don't care what anybody thinks anymore. Like, like, I'm just going to do what makes me happy today because I just saw how fleeting life is. And you or I could get off this podcast and hop in our cars and boom, it could be gone that quick. Yeah. And I decided, I was like, I'm going to do whatever makes me happy. I'll still always be good to my family and good to my friends, but, but I'm not going to do what I think I'm supposed to do. And I can't tell you how many people in my life I've met who are doing all the things they're supposed to do. And they're, but they're not, sometimes not finding the things that they love because of that, because it, it, it can be quite convicting. It can be, you know, like you, you've, it, it's, it's very gratifying to check the boxes and to do, I mean, when I work, I, I actually write in the morning well, I don't, I don't write anymore. I type it in, but I, these are all the things I'm going to get done today. Yeah. I've on Sunday nights. I do it for the week, you know, and then I, I literally highlight them off and that feels good, you know? And, and so maybe that can happen in life. Um, the other amazing thing, that happened then. That isn't answering this question at all, but that's right. It very much aligns my philosophy, which is, I remember thinking, "Wow, I, I felt like I really disappointed my parents when I almost killed myself on accident." <laughs> you know, like like I was, just, I don't know why I did. It just felt that way. I was like, <laughs> and my brothers, and this, and I remember, I remember thinking, I was like, "Wow, I could end up destitute. I could end up addicted, you know, to drugs or something." And I was like, "There's, there's these people." that are always going to be around me my 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 family you know my close friends my and 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 i remember thinking that was so great and i drew a circle in the dirt and i wrote a piece in one of my symphonies called circle of dirt it was about it uh 10 years after 15 years later but i put a circle in the dirt and i stood inside that circle and i was like i have all these people around me Mm -hmm. and that gave me such a confidence, just knowing I was loved and knowing that I mattered to people yeah. that I decided, okay, I'm going to be in that circle for other people is, you know, in my life that, that, that makes sure that I'm, that when we're friends, they know that I support them. They know that if something horrible happened, I have a couch, uh, or a bed, you know, whatever I have to, to support them. Yeah. Um, and interestingly enough, that's gone. That has really gone into my purpose as an artist because I've it took me 20 years of writing symphonies till I you know somebody asked me what's the through line and I'm like oh I never thought of it and then I was like oh it's that I want people to feel valuable I want them to feel loved I want them to feel like they matter that they're important that's aside from whatever religion whatever background they have yeah but so often in life because I every Friday I do a call with somebody up and coming in this industry and I have one scheduled in like three hours from now. And he's a Brazilian, young Brazilian composer who just moved to Hollywood. And in those talks, I can't tell you how many people I just asked them a couple of questions and let them tell me, you know, and, and then ask me their questions. But pe- I see more people stopping themselves and not giving themselves permission. Uh, they're their own worst critics. Yes. And so half the time, it's more of just like clearing the clutter and getting out of your way. And what I advise people a lot of times, I'm like, hey, do something you know you can do and just try it, something you haven't done, but that you bet you could do, whether that's running two miles or you know whatever it is, just pick one thing and do it. And then when you know you can do it, do the next thing and the next thing, because the reason that i I think the reason that I felt I could write a symphony was because nobody told me I could make an album.
0: yeah, <laughs> and yeah. I made
1: three. And then I went on to write a symphony. And then I thought, well, I'll do it again. And then I did it again and and, and so, after writing however many, I remember going, "Well, I, uh, I, I, I'm gonna try." Mo-. Somebody asked me to write music for one of their films, and I was blo- He was a film student at, at the Academy of Arts in San Francisco, and I loved it so much. I was like, "This, this is what I'm gonna do." If I would have known the odds against me, maybe I wouldn't have <laughs> moved to Hollywood. I, you know, I didn't know the odds against me, but all I thought was, "Somebody's got to do it." When I came down, I, I hustled, and I, I loved the hustle, and, and. But with each thing that I've endeavored, it's given me the confidence to try something else. So I've always thought, oh, I could try that.
0: Yeah, and one of the things, just to rewind just a little bit, one of the things I really love about you too is, uh, and this comes, I think, a little bit from the the, the the accident at 19, and and I think some people will lean into, there's some little caveats that you're saying that I want to make sure our audience here is like, it's not just doing what makes you happy, it's almost like this intersection of happy and what's healthy for you and for others. And I feel like there's this intersection for you around uh, doing things that make you feel good, but also benefit other people, and, and bringing those two things together. As an example, with the symphony, so you love music, you start <clears throat> composing symphonies, and it'd be really easy for a person to just, you know, become kind of a narcissistic artist who everything is about them and their brand and their life and their thing, and the kind of the vacuous black hole that sometimes I think uh, folks who have to advocate for themselves for a living can be tempted towards. You took a little bit of a different path in terms of composing symphonies in order to boost yourself. You started doing it to help other people. Could you tell us a little bit about how you can make a symphony that helps others?
1: Yeah. uh, (laughs) I will say when, uh, right after hitting some bigger success in Hollywood, I was asked to go speak all the time, all over, especially to universities and things and a lot of music schools. And I would always say, I will do this, as long as you allow me to talk about volunteerism. Hmm. And because I realized uh, that was more important in my life, the career, even though it's super exciting, the volunteerism fed me way more in my life. Um, And so when I wrote my first symphony, I was at that startup and I remember going to the, to the CFO or no, the CFO called me into his office one day. um, We've become good friends since. And he said, Hey, uh, I don't know if you know this, but my daughter recently passed. Her name is Jordan. She died of a brain tumor. And uh he goes, you know, she she was at Seattle Children. She goes, you know, they have a piano. He goes, I know you play piano around town at night. Um, and I cut him off and immediately went, Oh no, am I moonlighting? Is that okay? Do I need to stop? Like, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't know what yeah. you know. He goes, And he, it was so funny because he goes, We were all at your symphony last week, like you know, <laughs> which is really you, funny. You know what you do, yeah. <laughs> and uh and, and he goes, you know, they have a piano at the playroom at the hospital. And it was funny cause I always swore he asked me to do it. He goes, no, I never asked you to do it. He goes, and I said, okay, well, it was probably my Italian father Catholic and an Irish mother Catholic guilt. Mm-hmm. But I remember picking up the phone afterwards and I called up uh, the hospital and I said, Hey, I'm friends with the Duclos and um, uh, I, I play piano around town. Would you like me to come play down there? And they said, yeah, come on down. And I went down and played and I didn't know what to do. I mean, I was, I was in a playroom that's really big and it, you know, there's probably like 20 kids in there and uh, I didn't know what to do. So I started playing like peanuts, like da, 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 And, you know, kids were hanging out, they're blowing bubbles, they're playing, there's to- tons of toys and stuff in there. And then one kid started hanging out by the piano. So I took him and I propped him on the bench next to me hmm. and I had him, hit C an octave apart. And I played this big boogie woogie underneath like, I should have my keyboard on. I can play it for you. And, uh, and it was, it was so fun. And uh, he just lit up. Cause it like, we were playing a big duet together. And then we started writing a song together and the playroom session ended. It was like two hours long. And I mean, I I've been volunteering there for 20 plus years now. Cause that was before I wrote my first symphony And I've done the exact same introduction with every single kid I've ever met. And we play that boogie woogie. And then we write a song. And I always say we write songs about bees and dogs and farts. And we forget about cancer because sometimes, you know, it's a, it's a sibling. It's a, their big brother has cancer. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, cancer treatment at at Seattle Children's. Um, Sometimes, sometimes it is something different. You know, there's lots of different things, but. Um, I never know I, if someone's bald and a tube up their nose and they're, I know, I notice they're going through chemotherapy, you know, that's obvious, but yeah. what's so great is, you know, you never, it's not like prison where you're like, what are you in for? You know, <laughs> but, but it is, you, you don't ever have to, it, it would always be rude to ask that question. But what I found is every human being, we always think we always discredit kids, but kids seem to be to me as emotionally intelligent as any adult. Hmm. They really are. They're, they're. They're, they're already. I think we develop our emotion before our intellect, per se, yeah. um, or before our intellect can get in the way of our emotion and imagination. Hmm. And when I say, let's write a song, and they're like, I don't know how, and I'm like, well, what are you feeling? What's on your mind? We write songs about what they're going through. I'd say 98% of the time. Yeah. Like I mean, almost every single time they're talking about how they're feeling or how they think what's going on with their family, you know, and or the, what the struggle is, their fears their And it ends up being this great emotional experience. But what's so cool is like. The song gives them permission to talk about it. Yeah. Not that they're in a circle of other people with it or anything. It's the song that it's like, well, if it's in a song, then it's OK, because you're not just saying it, you're just singing these things. And maybe, maybe people, sometimes people think that people aren't paying attention to the lyrics, even they're just listening to the music, but this is like a way for them to say how they're feeling. And it's just beautiful. And so after doing that for a while, I, I, when I was at the, at the symphony hall to do the next very, the second concert, he said, Hey, are you affiliated with a 501 C3? And I go, what's that? And he goes, a nonprofit. And I go, Hmm. and I said, no. And he, and I said, why? And he goes, well, we give a different rate. that's much lower if you do this. And, and I said, "Oh, I go well. Could I just go find one, and and then give the difference in money that it would cost to that nonprofit?" It was so great. He goes, "No." <laughs> <laughs> and
0: <it> was, just in <laughs> case people were listening to the podcast audibly, uh, the his oh. words said no, but but Mateo's shaking his head up and down like yes.
1: <laughs> yeah. So he was he's basically saying I can't say yes, but I'm telling you yes, <laughs> and it was great. And so I thought, and I had met so many families, and I learned about this fund called uncompensated care at the hospital that basically because people come from Alaska, Oregon, um, uh, Montana, um, it's like four state, four or five states that, that the hospital services and wow. some people can't afford healthcare. There's a lot of, you know, like, uh, immigrants that come up from central America that are working in the, in the fields in central Washington. And, and this fund allows every kid, every family that comes to the door to be admitted. Yeah, and it's a very it, that to me is, is very important because it levels the playing field and that's been going we've been doing this for over 20 years and um, and so my little what we did is uh, that first fundraiser I, I didn't honestly that's the other thing I didn't tell the audience what I was doing I would just take the profits from the concert and give it to the hospital so we would raise a few grand then eight grand and ten and then finally I had this mentor which I miss having mentors mentors are very important in life I think I finally hit the point where I'm old enough where somebody's like no, you mentor me, you know, kind of yeah. but, uh, I miss having a mentor and I had this great mentor named Phil smart senior. And he, he had started a car dealership in Seattle, a Mercedes dealership, but he was, he was such a unique guy. He volunteered at Seattle children's every Wednesday for like 40 plus years. He wow. was my hero. He, he would play, he would go there on Christmas day, uh, uh as Santa, like he just was a unique guy. And he, he taught me a lot. He goes, you know, you and I are just learning from all these kids. Mm-hmm. And Anyways, one day he said, hey, he took me to lunch. He goes, you should share this with your audience. They'll give too, and you should formalize this. So the first year I did that, we raised like 20 grand. And I was like, oh my gosh. And then uh, and then I started having guests come perform my concerts. And, and the, the, the year we really jumped was when I uh, had this band, these guys I knew from Seattle, Alice and Chains, <laughs> come come play. And then, and then Anna Nancy Wilson of the band Heart. And that concert sold out in you know a week, and, yeah. and then we raised almost two hundred thousand dollars that year. And that was a long time ago; it's like two thousand seven or something. And and then since then, we've just grown and grown. So we raised you know over a quarter million. So we've raised over a couple million dollars for the hospital mm-hmm. through the years, and it's great. I get sponsors to pay for the costs, and then we just make all the tickets and all the donations go straight to the hospital.
0: Yeah, and and that's that's the brilliance of that. And hopefully, as you're listening to this. I do believe, Maddie, that like the, I do believe that people really love working with people who are up to things that are more than just about them. And it just, it's just more fun and it's more, you can trust those people. And at least as an outsider, because I've known you, I think we were talking before the podcast rolled for like 15 years or so, watching, watching your uh, success, I think comes in part for, and, and to actually correct me if I'm wrong, but like, you know, in the industry, yeah, I've heard you mention. You know, working on movies is like band camp, like for for eight weeks or twelve weeks, or you know, and then you, and then you go and you do it over again, and and so there's these little pockets of teams and directors and producers get to pick the people that they work with, and talents a part of that, obviously, and, and people can listen to your music and tell that you've got serious chops. But this is a leading question, but wouldn't you say that there's another factor like that people pick who they like to work with and who they like being around?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean. <clears throat> everyone's wild politics centers, but to be honest, more of it is about two things. It's kind of interesting in the film industry. It's about a lot about credits that gets you in the door. But then when you're in that meeting, the conversations, I mean, I always direct the conversation away from music. It's about emotion mm. and, um, it's very important. Yeah. I mean, it's more about, it's more about being able to Take in someone's vision. Listen, listen, listen. Just ask simple questions, and because you know, a lot of times people go into these meetings and they think that okay, that director is going to ask you questions about your approach and how you do this and that. And I, I almost have always flipped the script as you know, just where I ask them a few questions and uh, and then I'll get them talking because I'm there to really learn. If I'm the right fit, (laughs) I'm really there to learn, um, you know, what, uh, what will, what will work for them exactly and where they're coming from and what, what they want to say to the world. It's not about, it's not about music. It's, it's, it's really about emotion and helping them tell their story. So, uh, Part of that is when you ask people questions, especially about themselves or about the, the script they've written, which they've spent years on, by the way, and developing it and now, make, now they've made it and now they're talking to you. When you ask them about themselves, they walk away from that meeting going, I like that person. It's because more because they got to talk about themselves and they got to share what's really important to them, especially when it's something artistic. Instead of you just blathering on about why you think you might be good, that's not important, but giving them a sense of like, if somebody feels heard, that's who they're, they're going to want to work with the person that listens to them.
0: Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was just the other day listening to a conversation with one of the former heads of sales for Google. And he was talking about how he trained his people on how to sell these products, especially when no one knew what the hell they were years ago, years ago. And one of the things he said is when you're doing a conversation with someone you want to do work with, most people make the mistake of trying to lead with what they know. He said, what I try to do is I try to listen yeah. for all the things they say that I don't understand and then ask some questions about it and, and which helps them feel heard rather than feeling sold to. And it sounds like that's the same like relational um, way that you interact with directors and writers is rather than coming in and saying, Oh, this is what I can do coming in. Cause they know what you can do. They got your credits. You come in and, and you're trying to really hear and have a lens for what, what, where, where might other people be missing you or that may they not, may they not get you that I could get you if I listen hard enough?
1: Well, what's what's interesting too, is like, I mean, it it is a business in the end. And so you want the business, but I've had to say no to a couple of times, more than a couple of times. I just probably did a couple times just last year, but like, and I don't want to say no, but sometimes I'm like, Oh, I'm not, I'm not the right guy. I'm not the right person for this. You know, like he, she, he or she is better, you know, and, 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 uh, and because I found out the hard way by saying yes and then going through it and then it not working. So uh, I think it's just more of like being forthright uh, in the conversation also. That that helps quite a bit, I think.
0: Yeah, to be honest, that, which also takes a lot of courage. You know, like it requires you not having like a scarcity mentality or, oh man, like, you know, if I turn this down, is there something else coming? And kind of like trusting.
1: It, you know, another thing too that is always always the winner i think and it's how i raise my children when i when i asked my wife uh when i asked and instead of asking for my wife's permission from her father i asked from her kids uh who are my my bonus kids my my three bigs i when we i said look you guys uh they were so, so welcoming which is great and i said look i have way too much confidence i go i don't know what my parents did but i i just keep thinking i can do all these sorts of things and i go my goal with you, because I go, you have a great dad, you have a great mom, you have a great stepmom. I go, my goal with you is to instill as much confidence in you as possible. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like when you are confident, you can do more. You just can, you accomplish more. And so when people see that, they're like, Oh, this person can get it done. And and I I with friends and especially with family, every so often I write them. One of my ways of doing it is I, I write a what makes you great letter. And uh And, and with my teenagers, especially now, you know, they were, they're now older, but they, when I met them when they were, you know, eight, 11 and 12. And I remember, you know, teenagers, you think they don't listen to a word you're saying. When I would write these guys, these letters, I thought, well, it's just saying, Hey, I noticed you did this the other day. This is one of the things that's great about you. And here's, you know, it's one of the things, of reasons I love you. And it's usually like a page long. It's always handwritten. And when we were moving, um, our oldest boy, uh, Tammy found them, my wife found them a, st- a stack of them in his drawer, and I was like, oh, yeah that made a difference." You
0: know, like, yeah, yeah, and that, and I think that, again, that just goes to show. Like, I'm, I'm, what I'm thinking now selfishly is, you know, how can I do that for my nephews? How can I do that for my family? How can I, especially in times of COVID when we're all separate? How can you stay connected? Even as my team, as a leader, if I'm, you know, I'm leading a a small team. How can I do that for my immediate team? How can I do that for other coaches? Just catching people doing things right. Uh, is such a powerful a powerful thing. I want to pivot. It's going to feel a little like shifting without the clutch. But um, there's another gift that you have that I think goes underappreciated, especially when it comes to the arts. And the word I want to use is like economics. Like listening to you talk, you think like an entrepreneur. And I don't know. Did you study entrepreneurialism in college, or and by that, by that I mean you you think about. Uh, like this the, the short example you gave where you reached out to the MIDI company and said, Hey, if I put you on the flyer, uh, would you give me your stuff for free? Cause how I mean, how much was that equipment worth at that time?
1: Uh probably about six hundred dollars that I didn't have.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like you're a poor college kid and you and you figured out a way to do that. The like how how did you learn that? How did you learn like the the emotional intelligence of economics in terms of creating win-win situations where they get what they want, but you get what you need in order to to do what you want to do.
1: Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I'm trying to think if that's nature and nurture. I'm, I'm trying to think of like when I was a kid, my we we uh, had an allowance for doing certain chores, and then we could earn more if we did extra chores. And my dad or mom would have us make a list, and then put what we thought that was you know, valued at. So, (laughs) and I mean, I was the youngest of three boys. So I think I was probably doing that from an early age. Um, so I bet, you know, some more of that was probably nurture and nature. Um, and, but I don't know exactly where that comes from. Although ironically, uh, in my marketing studies, I did study entrepreneurship because I obviously was just interested in it. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think that probably helped me in my hustle. you know you mentioned before we jumped on here about oh I love in the start of your career you hustled and I'm like yeah. oh no no, I'm s- still in that spot even where I have business that's that' I, I'm, I, it, it's been great it's been wonderful. this last year has not been but that my industry has been pretty pretty slow uh, because of the pandemic yeah um, but I also just have a confidence of like, yeah, this, this will, you know, it, it'll come back. But the other part of me is like, but I'm going to do my part and do my business development and do the things that, you know, it, it just, people forget like to, to find these successes. It's not, especially in Hollywood, it's not luck. Yeah. It's just, it's just doing the work. And, and yesterday I was just visiting with a a, a director, a screenwriter, well, Nathan Scoggins, you know, Nathan Scoggins. Yeah. 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 I did a film from years ago and he and I were talking about we were just texting back and forth. And I mentioned, we were talking about, you know, the hustle. And I said, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, in the end, we're providing a service. It's a creative service. He goes, he goes, he goes, my students, he he teaches screenwriting at one of the universities around here. He goes, my students, uh, you know, are always amazed at like being in the professional, uh, me being in the professional world. And I go, and, and I go, well, that's because it looks like this sexy thing. Like you're writing a film yeah. you know, and I, and I, and I, or that I'm writing the music for this, these films and shows and these things play all over the world. And I get letters from people saying, I listen to this and I love it. Can I get the sheet music, whatever it is. And I said, we're providing a service. It's a creative service, but it's a service. And so not only do you have to do it well and hold yourself to a high standard, but you have to, 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 Put yourself out there. You have to ask for the business. I think people forget to ask for the business. Yes. So you kind of come in with this mentality, especially in mine, world it's like, you know, you want to be asked. It's like the, the, you're cool, and they want that cooler. But it's like half the time when I meet with people, if I if we connect, and I'm connecting with a, these producers at the studio or this director, I'll go, hey, uh, if it's the right fit, I'm like, I would love to score this for you. If all works out, I really would love to. Nice. And sometimes I'll say, if not, I really look forward to seeing it because I love the script. You know.
0: Yeah. And that, that's perfect. Two parts to that. One is, uh, I, if I was listening to this, I would write that phrase down. I would love to do blank for you. There's such a natural way. I'm not saying that I'm entitled to it. It's not saying I deserve it. It's just saying, I would just love to be a part of what you're up to and contribute to what you're up to. That's such a wonderful way of inviting yourself into somebody's world uh, That doesn't. that's not threatening. The other piece of this, just real quickly, I remember eight years ago when I was starting my first company, I would wake up in the morning, like I had no money. <laughs> you know, I was living in a, in, a, in a bedroom with this other uh, of a guy who owned this house and was letting let me sleep on his, like, there's no bed, really. It was like a mattress on the floor. And I'd wake up and I would Google, uh, universities. Cause I was working as a consultant for universities at the time. I would Google universities. I would find email addresses. I would email them, put them in a spreadsheet. And I'd have like a, I, my goal was like a hundred a day. And then I'd wake up and follow up with people from a week before and then do it all again. And, and, and like no one cared who I was. People probably still don't, but like, you know, I had no, nothing, you know, nothing. I was just building from scratch. And what's funny is right before we started recording, you told me a story about what you're doing right now. Can you tell our audience, like what, what you're up to right now?
1: I, let's see. I just had somebody redesign my website. Ironically, it was somebody who volunteers for me. So I was able to hire them, which always makes me so happy. Volunteered for the symphony and for children's Hospital. So then I said, Oh, I'm going to hire your business. Um, But the other is I, i this week, probably I'm closing in on 200 emails, but they're all to all my clients, all my directors, mm-hmm. produce film producers, TV producers, editors, music supervisors, music editors, uh, the studio execs, all the people that I've worked with, and and I write them. Uh, but I'm not doing it's and when I started doing it. I would be like, "Hi friends, here's what's going in the studio," and it was like yeah. BCC all these people. Yeah. Now I literally. To see what they're up to, catch up with them. Because here's the thing, a lot of those people, I just genuinely care about because we yeah. worked together and we had a good experience. Um, and and you're, some, all
0: going, you're all going through the same thing too right now.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. And so, uh, and, so uh, and then some of them I know, you know, we might've met on a small, ba- you know, short basis, but I I just check in with them and I, I'm mostly letting them know, hey, my family and I, we moved back into town. I built a new studio, but, you know, and I also say the irony is not lost on me that, you uh, move back to be closer to friends, clients, the studios and, and musicians. And then it's all closed anyway. Yeah. Uh, Cause I was doing living in Seattle, doing meetings on Skype and zoom and things like that for eight years while I was up there well,
0: and flying from Seattle to LA, to, from uh, LA, so Seattle to Burbank back and forth. Multiple Almost
1: times once meetings. a week. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes twice a week. It was absurd.
0: Yeah. And, and so then just to our listeners and we'll wrap up with this, there's one last question I want to ask you and then we'll be done. The, uh, the, the, the hustle never stops. Yeah. you're You're either hustling to get work or you're hustling doing the work. But there's never not a hustle. And what I make up about you is one of the reasons why you've had staying power. and I would love to do this again and talk about how you've managed the flow of your work because I, I remember years ago i you were in in a continued peak. you know, like I think you continued to peak, but or it continued to grow, but you were in the season of moving from beyond doing work that, that you couldn't do on your own anymore. And I think that the wisdom that you have around how do you scale yourself and how do you build systems and how do you work with teams is really fascinating and we'll, we'll bring you in for another episode. Uh, but you, you've never stopped hustling and you've, done, you've been able to go the distance because you love the hustle. You found sure. something that you love to hustle at. Now, the last question is, and I think this is a nice do- uh, book into our conversation for today. Uh, the advice, the, the, the comment that your dad made to you years ago when, you, when you're, you know, you're you're writing symphonies, you're doing all these things. I don't, I don't know if you remember, but it's one of my favorite things that, you're, that you've told me that your dad has told you or that your dad told you. Uh, can you leave our audience with that? It's uh, funny because for
1: I forgot about it until you just, remember. yeah. I, I, was, I don't remember what symphony I was on. It was around 2007, and I said, "Dad, I convinced the Pacific Northwest Ballet to give me this like 30 foot high, scrim by like 60 feet long, that's going to hide the entire orchestra." behind the stage, on the stage. And I said, I'm going to light him from behind and you're going to see the conductor is going to be like 30 feet tall and you'll see the tops of the heads and the bows of all of them. And then dancers are going to come out from them. And I go, he looks at me and he goes, you still don't know what you can't do. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember at first, I almost took offense to it. Like I was like, hey, I'm, I'm an adult. I know what I can and can't do. And then it took me, I don't know how long later, maybe days or whatever. I was like, Oh, that's the greatest compliment I've ever received in my life. I will carry that with me throughout my life because I don't yeah. want to know. Yeah. And I still, and I, and then that's what enables me to go out and do, I'm endeavoring onto something really big that I don't want to say on here yet publicly yet, but that has nothing to do with what I do. And I'm excited about, about doing that this later this year. So,
0: yeah. yeah. And I think that's, that is, it's a great headline. Matteo Messina <clears throat> Uh, doesn't know what he can't do. And I think that's one of the secrets to your success. And I would encourage our listeners to unlearn what you think you can't do. And uh, so even just as a few wrap-ups here, uh, one of the things I would love for our audience to embrace, and we're actually going to create a PDF uh, for people to to take this individual, kind of like turn some journaling questions or even take it to their teams and extract value from this conversation. So conversations around, what does it look like for you to give yourself permission? What does it look like for you to be the kind of person that other people love to help by... By uh, learning how to make your success not just about yourself, but helping other people become successful, uh, being generous, and also uh, not knowing what you can't do. and how do you how do you create teams that don't know what they can't do and are generous towards each other in the world? How do you create uh, leaders and artists who are a little bit more like Matteo Messina and I think that would make the world a better place. So Maddie, thank you so much for spending time with us. I, I would love to do this again sometime, but uh, thanks for for our first swing at being on the show. Thanks so much. It's great to see you. Thank you for listening. For more resources like this, as well as articles and videos by all of our coaches, go to novus.global and click on resources. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, that helps us out a lot. Rate and leave a review. If you didn't like us, just leave us alone. We drop new episodes every week and we don't want you to miss out. If you want to explore hiring a Novus Global coach or becoming an executive coach at the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching, email us at begin at novus.global or click the link in the show notes. Thank you again for listening. And remember, dare to go beyond high performance.